welcome to another inspirational message from Brave Church UK. Awesome. Well, good morning. For those who don't know me, my name is Sheila and I'm married to Nigel. We've got four boys aged 8, 10, 13 and 16. I know. I know. Wow. That in itself is like an achievement. And last month we celebrated 22 years of marriage. Whoop. Thank you. Thank you. I know. Wow. Um, you know, when I first met Nigel, I didn't really know much about him. And obviously, you know, you spend time getting to know people, don't you? You build a friendship. And I found out more about what he liked, what he disliked, you know, his values, his beliefs, all that kind of stuff. Eventually, we got engaged and obviously ended up getting married. And um, even then, that didn't mean that I knew everything about him. For example, I didn't realize quite what a diverse taste in music Nigel has. And how he likes to sometimes blast those tunes out when he's in the zone of listening to those tunes. I didn't realize quite how much he loved his war and strategy films as well. You know, a good Saturday night is watching people being annihilated with a machine gun. And uh, I also didn't realize that he's a member of the Laurel and Hardy Appreciation Society and has his name in one of their books. There you go. Fascinating facts about Nigel this morning. I'm sure he could probably share some about me, but fortunately I've got the microphone, not him. Um, but, you know, different situations bring different aspects of our character out, don't they? And, you know, for example, moving house or stressful situations like that will bring things out of us. Or, you know, having big life changes like having children or losing people we love. They all bring different as attributes and aspects of our character out. And, you know, even for us, 22 years on, there's still going to be situations where we're going to learn new things about each other because we haven't discovered everything in life yet. We're still on a journey together. And in the same way, you know, we can't know God through just one encounter. We can't assume that we come to church on a Sunday and that's it. That's everything there is to know about God. Because as we journey, we're going to learn different things about who God is and how he responds to us and how we can respond to him in the situations we're in. And this series that we're in where we're looking at the names of God is going to be so helpful for us in understanding more of who God is, more about what he's like and, and how he responds to us and, and the different nature that he, he has. Because he's not just black and white. There's so many different sides to God. There's so much more to him than sometimes we realize. And our belief affects our behavior. So if your belief about God is very limited, you're going to reflect that in your behavior towards him. But we have an opportunity through this series to broaden our belief, to broaden our understanding of who God is, and hopefully to change our behavior and change our approach to him as we journey with him. And Simon began the series last week talking about Jehovah Nissi, God as our banner. If you didn't hear that, you can catch up with that on the podcast. But this morning, I'm going to look at Jehovah Tesuri. I think that's how you pronounce it, which is the Lord is my rock. I don't know if you've ever had somebody in your world who you would describe as being your rock. That's somebody, maybe a family member or a friend, somebody who's been there for you. They've remained loyal. They've remained strong. Someone that you've been able to lean on through the challenges and the tough seasons in your life. But, you know, we're only human as well. And we can let people down. And, and we can't guarantee that we're always going to be there. But, you know, God is our rock. And he will never let us down. He is always there. He is faithful. He is consistent. And he will remain so, whatever situation you're in. So what does Tzuri mean? Well, in Hebrew, it has a few different meanings. First meaning is refuge. It means more than just a little bit of rock. Okay, It's a great, solid, mighty rock cliff. 
And in Palestine, it would have been referred to as a cave where refuge could have been found. And there's a story in 2 Samuel where uh, David is running away from King Saul, who's trying to kill him because he's jealous of him and he's threatened by him. And David finds himself hiding in a cave. He finds refuge in the rock. But later on in 2 Samuel 22, verses 2 and 3, he writes this as he realizes that his real refuge and protection comes from God. He says, the Lord is my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. Tazuri also means shade from the heat. In the desert, a big rock might be the only place where you can get shade and shelter from. And, you know, shelter from the heat of the day. God is our shade. He's our shield from the heat of life's challenges. Isaiah 25 verse 4 says, You've been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. Another meaning for Tazuri is source of a mighty stream of water. There's a story in Exodus where Moses is leading the Israelites. There's hundreds of thousands of them, and they're going through the desert, and they're grumbling because they're thirsty. So God tells Moses to strike a particular rock, and when he does, water comes gushing out because God is our provider in times of need. God is our rock. He's stable. He's secure. He's solid. He's dependable. He's permanent. He's unwavering. He's trustworthy. That's his nature That's who he's always been. And he's not going to change when you ask him to get involved in your life. He's not suddenly going to become unstable and wobbly. He is who he is, always has been, always will be. You know, God is our rock and he provides strength. Deuteronomy 32, 3 to 4 says, I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. He provides stability. 2 Samuel 22, 32 and 37. For who is God beside the Lord? Who is a rock except our God? You provide a broad path for my feet so that my ankles do not give way. God provides a defense for us. Maybe you feel like you need some protection this morning. Psalm 18, verse 2. The Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. God provides a dwelling place for us as well. Psalm 91, God says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. And he provides salvation. Maybe you feel like you need saving and rescuing this morning. Psalm 95, verse 1, come let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. That's who God as our rock is. He can be the foundation of your life if you allow him to be. As a family, for the last few years, we've been involved in some summer camps, and they're run for children and young people aged between the age of 9 and 18. And they spend a week camping on a field, which is always an interesting challenge. They get put into teams with a leader and do lots of different activities, wide games, football, um, rounders, lots of craft activities, and there's lots of great Bible teaching and worship and missionary speakers, and also some amazing food. And camps are usually based on the coast so that they can make the most of the fact that there's a beach there. And one of the games they like to play on the beach is called Fight the Tide. And the idea of the game is that they have a set length of time to build the most solid structure they can using sand and rocks, whatever's on the beach. They have until a tide starts coming in, at which point they stop building. I think we've got a picture here. They place a leader on top of the structure. And the idea is to see which structure stands and which leader stays standing the longest as the tide comes crashing in. And uh, obviously it's last man standing, basically. And there's always some really creative designs, some look amazing, but until that tide starts to come in, you have no idea which structure is going to stand. 
Jesus told the story in Matthew 7, 24 about the wise and foolish builders. The wise man built his house on the rock and when the storms came, because it had the rock as its foundation, that house stood firm. The foolish man built his house on the sand and when those storms came, the house fell with a great crash. The wise man, Jesus said, is a man who hears God's word and does something about it, puts them into practice. The foolish man is the person who hears God's word and does nothing about it. God is our rock. When the storms of life come, he will allow us to stand firm, to remain on solid ground and to find our refuge in him. But we can only do that if we're choosing to build our life with him as a foundation. You know, there will be times and seasons of our life where we feel like we're being shaken. And Haggai 2 verse 6 to 9 says this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations. What is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. You know, as we go through life, things happen. Conversations, interactions that can cause feelings and emotions and behaviors to stick with us without us even realizing it. And, you know, it can be a bit like this. So I've got some sand here and I've got a sieve. And it can be a bit like in life that God's got hold of us and he's shaking our world. And as he does that, what he's doing is he's shaking to the surface all the things that stick to our world that we don't even realize are in there. Like that. Pride. Insecurities. Fears. Unforgiveness. Wrong attitudes, wrong motives, dishonesty, you know, the list goes on. But they were hidden in the sand. And until I started shaking them, you wouldn't have known they were there. And sometimes that's what God does with us. You know, the stuff hiding in our world, we don't even realize it until our world starts shaking a little bit, until things start becoming a little bit wobbly. And then those things come to the surface. And what do we do then? Well, we can deal with them. We can take them to God. We can confess them to him and confess them to somebody else, get them out, speak them out and ask for forgiveness and move forward. But until they come to the top, we can't deal with them, can we? You know, and when we do that, we can ask God to fill, them, fill us with his Holy Spirit, fill us with the fruit of his spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, which I'm sure we would much rather carry around than some of those things. It was Boxing Day 2004. Thousands of European and American tourists had flocked to the beaches of Thailand, Sri Lanka and Indonesia to escape the winter chill in a tropical paradise. Some of you may remember this story. At 7.59am, a 9.1 magnitude earthquake, one of the largest ever recorded, ripped through an undersea fault in the Indian Ocean, propelling a massive column of water toward unsuspecting shores. The Boxing Day tsunami would be the deadliest recorded history, taking a staggering 230,000 lives in a matter of hours. The city of Banda Aka on the northern tip of Sumatra was closest to the powerful earthquake's epicenter and the first waves arrived in just 20 minutes. It's nearly impossible to imagine the 100-foot rolling mountain of water that engulfed the coastal city of 320,000, instantly killing more than 100,000 men, women and children. Buildings folded like cards. Trees and cars were swept up in the oil-black rapids and virtually no one caught in the deluge survived. Thailand was next, with waves traveling 500 miles per hour across the Indian Ocean. The tsunami hit the coastal provinces of Pangnagar and Phuket an hour and a half later. Despite the time lapse, 
Locals and tourists were caught completely unaware of the imminent destruction. Curious beachgoers even wandered out among the oddly receding waves, only to be chased down by a churning wall of water. The death toll in Thailand was nearly 5,400, including 2,000 foreign tourists. An hour later, on the opposite side of the Indian Ocean, the waves struck the southeast coast of India, near the city of Chennai, pushing debris-choked water kilometres inland, killing more than 10,000 people, mainly women and children, because the men were out fishing. Some of the worst devastation reserved for the island nation of Sri Lanka, where more than 30,000 people were swept away by the waves and hundreds of thousands were left homeless. As proof of the record-breaking strength of the tsunami, the last victims of the Boxing Day disaster perished nearly eight hours later when swelling seas and rogue waves caught swimmers by surprise in South Africa, 5,000 miles from the quake's epicenter. Vasily Titov, a tsunami researcher and forecaster, shared that he will never forget the scenes of widespread devastation he witnessed on Sumatra, even months after the tsunami waters had subsided. He said, we took a boat all the way from the middle of the island up to Banda Aka, the hardest hit area. For hundreds of kilometers, it was as if somebody had taken an eraser and erased everything under the 20 meter line. The sheer scale of the destruction was just mind boggling. And that's really hard hitting, isn't it? That's really impactful when we listen to what happened. People's lives were devastated on that day. Locals and holiday makers lost people they love. Homes were ruined, businesses were shattered. That, that day, people's lives were shaken in such a way that nothing looked the same again. But you know, there's times and seasons where it can feel like everything in our world is being shaken. It's as if some sort of tsunami is ravaging its way through our lives, causing chaos and devastation in our finances, our health, our career, our relationships, our future plans, even our faith. It can feel like every area of our life is being swamped and turned upside down. What do we do when that happens? Well, the first thing you need to know is that you can be ready. When God shakes your world, you can be ready. When situations shake your world, you can be ready. How? Well, you know, when a tsunami is coming, people usually know about it. There's signs, there's readings, there's predictions, there's a forecast, and it allows people the opportunity to be ready and to prepare themselves in some way to get to shelter or to go to the high places, do whatever it is they need to do. When a shaking is coming into our world, I believe God speaks and he gives us time to get ready. He gives us time to get the right foundation in place in our life so that even if things in our world are shaken, we stand firm. He doesn't give us a time and a date when something is going to happen, but he does prepare our hearts and minds ready for what's coming our way. For example, he doesn't tell you that you're going to be overlooked and not thanked in your role by people who you look up to, but he does tell you how to handle upset and offence and how to forgive so that relationships aren't damaged or you know, go beyond being repaired, and so that you don't end up stuck in offense. He doesn't tell you that there's a health challenge coming your way, but he does teach you how to walk in peace and how to cast your worries onto him, so that you're not overwhelmed by fear, and so that you're not consumed by what might be. He doesn't tell you there's financial challenges coming your way, but he does tell you to seek first his kingdom, and that everything else you need will follow. So you know that as you honor him, as you tithe and as you seek him first, everything you need, God will provide. As you stay connected to God, he will give you what you need in your world for what is coming your way. He'll speak to you through the Bible as you read it each day. You'll hear things in a preach that seem to be just for you. In a conversation, it'll be as if there's another voice speaking as God by his Holy Spirit prompts things in your world. 
God can even speak through films. That's another thing I learned when I married Nigel. John 10, Jesus talks about being the good shepherd. He says in verse 27, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. How do you know something's coming when you listen to what God is saying and you do what he tells you to do? Be ready by doing what God says. Whether that's forgiving someone, tithing, dealing with an ongoing area of your life that you know God keeps highlighting, whatever it might be, as you listen, you'll know what to do. Several years ago, Nigel and I were involved in leadership and um, God spoke to me very clearly one day and he told me that I needed to step down from leadership position that I was in. And I took that back to the team and I got persuaded to stay where I was. I listened to man rather than to God. And literally a few weeks later, our whole world was shaken. There was just a, you know, a real wave of God shaking. And you know, we found ourselves in the middle of one of the toughest, most challenging seasons of our life. And I wonder, well, I know, that it, had I listened to God, had I done what God said, I think the outcome would probably have been very different for me and maybe for the family. You know, when God speaks, I can't implore you enough and encourage you enough to do what God says. Because otherwise, those waves, those tsunami waves, they'll come, they'll catch you off guard if you've not done what God asked you to do when he asked you to do it. Psalm 15 says this in the Passion Translation. Lord, who dares to dwell with you? Who presumes the privilege of being close to you, living next to you in your shining place of glory? Who are those who daily dwell in the life of the Holy Spirit? They are passionate and wholehearted. They're always sincere and always speaking the truth for their hearts are trustworthy. They refuse to slander or insult others. They'll never listen to gossip or rumors, nor would they ever harm another with their words. They will speak out passionately against evil and evil workers while commending the faithful ones who follow after the truth. They make firm commitments and follow through even at great cost. They never crush others with exploitation or abuse and they would never be bought with a bribe against the innocent. They will never be shaken. They will stand firm forever. We can learn how to stand firm in the storms of life as we look at that psalm. It gives us some keys as to what an unshakable life, a life built on the right foundation, can look like. The first thing is that our heart needs to be right. When you're in right relationship with God and with others, it provides a solid, secure foundation to stand on. You're not wavering. Mark 12, 30 encourages us that we need to love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. In Luke 6, 45, it says, A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And I wonder this morning, what are we storing up in our hearts? Maybe it's fear and worry about what could happen, what might be, the what-ifs. If we carry worry and we carry fear in our heart, that's going to overspill into our world. And that's a shaky foundation to build our life on. Matthew 6, 25 to 27 says, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And you might say to me, but you don't know what situations I'm facing. You don't know what's going on in my world. No, I don't, but God does, and God is bigger than any and every situation we face. He knows. He knows everything about you. And you can still trust him because he's not going to let you down. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And that's not a passive statement. 
that's active. If you've ever done any fishing, when you cast, you cast your line into the water. There's an action. It requires an involvement. And what we need to learn to do is we need to learn to cast our worries onto God. We need to learn to be proactive and we need to learn to get up and do something about it. Not just sit with them in our world and stay with them and say, no, God, I'm going to cast these to you. I'm going to cast these to the foot of the cross and I'm not going to go and pick them back up again. I'm going to leave them there because when we cast on all our worries onto him, God can do something about it. He's your rock, your refuge, your ever-present help in time of need. What else do we store up in our heart? Approval of others. This is a big one, I think. You know, so often we work from a place of needing to get the approval of people and of God. That's what drives us. So we can't say no. Or if we do say no, we feel guilty. Or we worry about what people might think about us. And everything we do is about people telling us how good we are and how much we're needed. And we all love affirmation. But that's not a solid foundation to build your life on. What happens if you can't do what you've always done? Where does your approval come from then? What happens if you give your absolute best and nobody gives you any encouragement or affirmation for it? Where does that leave you? Matthew 3, 13 to 17 talks about Jesus' baptism. And when John has baptized Jesus, we read that a voice from heaven says, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. And I love that because Jesus hasn't done anything yet. He's not performed any miracles. He's not healed anybody. He's not done any amazing teaching. He's not raised anybody from the dead. He did all of that from the place of approval once he knew he was loved. You know, he went out and did all of those things. And so many of us are working for approval in what we do. We're craving for more approval, for people to tell us how good we are. And that's what we're pushing for all the time. You already have the greatest approval you'll ever need. God tells us in the word that he loves us. He loves you. He is pleased with you. He thinks you're amazing. You're the apple of his eye. And, you know, I want to encourage you to shift your foundation. Stop building on the approval of others and start living, serving, working, parenting, whatever it is, from a place of knowing that you've got all the approval you'll ever need. Anything else from anyone else is just a bonus. What else does Psalm 15 tell us so we can have the right foundation in our life? Well, it talks about our speech and particularly how we speak about others talks about not slandering or casting a slur over them through our words. And slander is making false or damaging statements about someone. Your words are powerful. Proverbs 18.21 says, The tongue can bring life or death. Those who love to talk will reap the consequences. What are we saying about other people? Are we using our words wisely? You know, I'm becoming more and more aware of just how powerful our words are. How my words spoken about someone else can change somebody else's opinion of that person. And as I look back, I can see how much I've been influenced by that, how I've allowed other people's thoughts on somebody to change how I behave towards them. And some of that is down to immaturity on my part, and some of that is down to the fact that words are powerful, and we trust people, and we believe what they say. But, you know, just because we struggle with someone doesn't mean everybody else will. We're all different. We have different personalities. And, you know, I wonder sometimes if we rob one another of friendships because of how we talk about other people to each other. You know, maybe you find somebody a little over-enthusiastic, but that's okay. Just because you find them a little bit over-enthusiastic doesn't mean they're not going to be the right person for somebody else. You know, and we need to be really careful how we talk about other people and what we say about them. Ephesians 4.29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. If we choose to speak badly and negatively of people, we're building a shaky foundation for our life. 
We choose to speak wisely. We need to be gracious and kind to build on a solid foundation. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Another area we need the right foundation is in our actions. We need to be people who walk with integrity and honesty, whatever situation we find ourselves in. There's a story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, and he has a rough journey. He's sold into slavery by his brothers. He finds himself in Egypt working in the house of one of Pharaoh's officials, a man called Potiphar. And he worked hard, and God was with him, and God blessed him as a result. And Potiphar, his house got blessed as well. And so he put Joseph in charge of pretty much everything. And then we read in, jo- in Genesis 39... Verse 6 to 7. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. There's an awkward moment. (laughs) Joseph could have taken her up on the offer, but he refused. She pesters him day after day. But he's walking with integrity. He's not prepared to compromise his standards just because somebody flatters him with words. His life is built on a more solid foundation than that. It's built on the rock, on truth, on strength, on stability. And eventually she makes up a story about him that he's tried to seduce her. And because of what she says, he loses his job. He gets thrown in prison. He gets forgotten about for years. For Joseph, it all comes good eventually, but it does take time. It takes a number of years. And throughout his whole journey from slavery to prison and beyond, his life is being shaken a bit like that sieve there. It's being shaken all over the place in every way possible. But he remains strong, he remains secure because he knows where his foundation is. He knows that God is his rock, God is his refuge, God is his fortress, God is his provider. And whatever else is going on in his world, however much that's been shaken, he knows that God is his solid foundation. There'll be times in your journey where you have the potential to compromise or to lower your standards for the sake of a promotion or a friendship, whatever it might be. I want to encourage you to keep standing on the rock of truth. Maintain your integrity. You might not get where you need to get to as fast, but you won't get shaken off track by the consequences of your choices. The final area to get secure foundation is in obedience. I'm a parent four times, as I mentioned at the start. And, you know, becoming a parent, it's a, it's a journey, isn't it? <laughs> Nine months prepares you for nothing. I hope there's nobody pregnant in here first time. But, you know, it doesn't prepare you for the lifetime you're going to have with that unique little baby who is going to grow and have their own thoughts, their own ideas, their own opinions, which, as I've found very often, don't seem to match the ones that I have for them. An ongoing parent battle is one of obedience, and it starts young. When our boys were much smaller, we would sit them on the bottom step if they misbehaved. And they would sit there for the number of minutes that matched their age, And then it would just simply be a case of getting them to say sorry for what they'd done so they could come off the step. Sounds simple. Until you come up against a stubborn two-and-a-half-year-old who for 45 minutes refuses to say sorry. There were some challenging days back then, and I'll leave you to work out which of my four children that might have been. Now they're older, the challenge is when they're asked to do something, actually getting them to do it the first time, or even maybe the second time would be good. But, you know, the challenge is there, and it's definitely a work in progress. But I wonder if sometimes that's what we're like with God. God speaks something into our world, and we kind of operate with our selective hearing, and we ignore it for a little bit. And then God prompts us again and reminds us. It comes up in a preach or in a conversation. It's like, oh, I'm sure I've heard that before, and we ignore it again. And it's like God has to keep reminding us of what he's saying until we actually do what he said. Maybe 
you know, we make a promise to God or to someone else. And when it gets a bit tough, we become a little bit more selective about remembering that we made that promise. We need to be people of our word, even when it's tough and even when it costs. You know, for many of us in here who are married, we've said our wedding vows, Dave and Gillian, obviously, very freshly. And, uh, you know, how many of us can say we've kept every single vow, we've kept every single promise? You know, for those of us who've had children and we dedicated them, we made promises before God about how we're going to raise those children. Are we doing what we promised under God we would do? Ecclesiastes 5 verse 4 says, When you make a vow to God, don't delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Don't let your mouth lead you into sin and don't protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Jonah 2.9, what I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. Be careful what you promise to God and to people. You know, I used to be part of a year out team many, many years ago. And people would come on that year, they'd sign up and they'd give a year to God. And they would commit to, to serving God for that year and, and not kind of entering into any relationships or, or anything like that. And it was amazing how within weeks and sometimes even days, the man or woman of their dream would suddenly appear. It was as if God was testing that promise. And we saw many people derailed as a result of that kind of promise being made and then them not seeing it through. And it's easy done. We all have the right intentions. God, I'll do this for you. I'll give up that. I'll go there. I'll stay here. Whatever it might be. It's great to say in the middle of worship when we're caught up and the emotion is there in the middle of a preach as we respond to God. But when the moment passes and the emotions fade, we'll be tested on what we've said. And we need to stand firm and stand true to what we've agreed under God. You know, we will be building on a shaky foundation if we're building on broken promises. We need to be people of our word who walk in obedience and build on a strong foundation. You know, and where it's been broken, we repent, we say sorry, and we move forward. I'm going to invite the band back up and just finish with this. There's a story in the Bible of a man called Job. And in Job 1, it says this, In the land of us, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys. And he had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. Job was a man who we would say lived right before God, but he found himself in a place where his world was shaken. Everything, his family, he lost all of his children. His health, he was covered from head to foot in sores. His business was just ruined. All his livestock were killed. His whole world was turned upside down. And yet throughout that whole time, Job maintained a right relationship with God. He didn't blame God for what was going on. He didn't walk away from his faith because he was having a tough time. He chose to stand on the rock, to place his feet on solid ground, irrespective of what everything else was doing. His world might have been crumbling, but he didn't need to as well. And I want to encourage you this morning to check your life. What are you building on? Are you ready for any storms that will visit your world? Like the wise man who built his house on the rock, will you stand secure? Let's pray, shall we? That's the end of this week's podcast. We hope that it inspired you. For any more information, visit bravechurch.co.uk.